0: Hello listeners, Justin Burke here. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune into our show every other week. We have loved having amazing guests and listeners from all over the world. This is a call for producers. We are starting to expand and we would love your help. Do you want to be a producer on the show? If so, send us a brief email with a few sentences detailing why and include a pilot script. A script is just a clinical vignette, approximately 10 questions, and it'll help take our expert on a deep dive through a core pediatric topic. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for our next episode. Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders Hey, yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: there's that energy we love. <laughs> After an hour of technical difficulties, we I'm still
1: recording in the dark. I literally persevered. am recording in the dark. A storm, a
0: power <laughs> outage, and three different recording platforms later, I'm Justin Bork, joined tonight by Dr. Chris the True Manchu, and mm-hmm. our outstanding producer Dr. Joan Park. Say hi, Joan. Hi. This was a great episode, despite the stars misaligning with venus and making it a difficult one to record this was a great episode our guest tonight was dr stephen daniels to discuss pediatric dyslipidemia but before we tell you about that chris yes you remind me about the
1: show oh yeah no problem we are the pediatric medicine podcast we interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls practice changing knowledge and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine
2: we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Stephen Daniels. Dr. Daniels is an MD-PhD and he is a pediatric cardiologist at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and Children's Hospital, Colorado. His clinical practice and research focuses on preventative cardiology, including dyslipidemia, hypertension, and obesity. His focus on cardiovascular risk factors as they present in childhood and adolescence is directed at improving cardiovascular health and prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Dr. Daniels has been a member of a number of guideline committees for the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Heart Association and the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Daniels is also an associate editor for the Journal of Pediatrics and is on the editorial board for pediatric obesity. On today's episode, Dr. Daniels teaches us about when and how to screen for obesity-related dyslipidemia, the common prevalence of familial dyslipidemia, when we need to do fasting lipid panels, and how general pediatricians should feel confident to pull the trigger and start a statin.
1: And I don't really have a good pun, but I just want to say I really heart this episode.
0: Oh, bummer. No pun. Oh, too bad. I'm sorry. (laughs) Dr. Steve Daniels, we are so excited to have you. Welcome to the Cribsiders.
3: Thanks, Justin. It's great to be here.
0: We are so grateful for your time, your expertise, and we're excited to know you a little bit better. And to start, can you provide our listeners with a one-liner to describe yourself and help our audience to know you a little bit more.
3: Sure. So I'm a pediatric cardiologist. Uh, I'm also the chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. I'm a father of four children who are all grown and out of the house and a grandfather of five now. I am uh, really passionate about prevention. Picked pediatric cardiology so that uh, I could focus on preventing adult cardiovascular disease. And uh, that's been a big part of my career.
0: Amazing. And with Colorado, I think hiking and skiing, are you a green circle, blue square, or or black diamond kind of guy?
3: I am definitely not a black diamond <laughs> kind of guy. I stick to the uh, intermediate slopes and uh, manage to uh, succeed there. But uh, it's a lot of fun, and it's uh, always great to get into the mountains any time of year. So hiking, biking, uh, skiing, all fun.
0: I tried a Black Diamond once, and halfway down, the ski patrolman came and said, do you need help getting down the mountain? And that was my very humbling experience
3: on <laughs> a, a mountain. Yeah, I'm smart enough not to even try. I'm smart.
1: <laughs> my favorite question is, um, what is your favorite failure, and what did you learn from it? Yeah.
3: So I'll talk about a failure that happened early in my life. So um, it actually happened in Little League when I was, uh, I guess, 10 or 11 years old. So I joined a Little League team. And the way that the season was organized was that the winners of the first half of the season would play the winners of the second half of the season for the championship at the end of the year. And uh, I, the team I joined uh, was a pretty good team in terms of the players but none of us knew each other and uh and so during the first half of the, of the season we lost every game and uh as you might imagine at that age that was uh, a pretty devastating failure but the interesting part of the story is for the second half of the season we won every game and we actually won the championship game and so i think the lesson learned maybe two lessons one is perseverance i think sticking with it uh Uh, is always uh, a valuable thing to do. But also uh, what happened, I think, with our team is we gelled as a team. We learned how to play together. And I think that that was uh, an important part of what happened.
0: I think that this is a perfect metaphor for the adversity of the technical issues that we just experienced (laughs) together. And now I think we can gel gel. uh, (laughs) for the second half of the season. This is great.
3: So perseverance pays off in multiple venues. Perfect metaphor.
2: Great, uh the question I wanted to ask is, what is a book that every physician should read
3: yeah so i I would pick uh cast, which is a book by uh, Isabel Wilkerson, and it focuses on the concept that you know we tend to think about caste as a construct, a social construct in India, but she really develops the concept that this is a actually a construct virtually in every society, and that we need to understand how it works. She also wrote The Warmth of Other Suns, which is another really great book about the migration of African Americans to northern cities. And uh, she's, she's a great author, and uh, uh, it's well worth reading.
2: Wow, thank you. I'm definitely going to have to add that to my list. So we wanted to go ahead and get started with our cases at Ch- Cashflack Children's. So our first case, we have Livy, a 15 year old girl who recently moved from Staten Island to establish care. Overall, she's been doing well, no past medical history and no acute concerns. So family history is significant for type 2 diabetes in mom, and on the physical exam, vital signs are within normal limits, and you note that she's at the 97th percentile for BMI. So to start off, whenever we send a lipid panel, it has so many different values. So what actually constitutes dyslipidemia?
3: Well, so you're right. When we draw blood for a lipid panel, uh, we actually measure several different things, So we measure total cholesterol, uh, we measure triglycerides, we measure high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, or HDL, and low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, or LDL. And each has its own set of normal values. And in general, we tend to use the same values across all pediatric ages in most labs. And in general, the values for children are lower Uh, the normal values are lower than they are uh, for adults. So as an example for total cholesterol, uh, we would uh, say that anything under 170 is normal. 170 to 200 is borderline and over 200 is elevated. For LDL, we would say anything under 110 is normal. Anything between 110 and 130 is borderline and uh, values above 130 are elevated. And for triglycerides, some people divide by age, but I would generally say anything over 130 is elevated. And for HDL, obviously, we look at it the other way around. Uh, We like HDL to be higher, and um, we're looking for values at least over 40, but actually values over 45 are considered optimal.
0: And so for this patient that has obesity, we've talked about how we can approach a lipid panel but we haven't ordered the lipid panel quite yet. And so who are the people that we should be doing screening lipid panels on? When should we do it? How often should we do it? Yeah. When should we be doing these lipid panels in in the pediatric
3: population? Good question. So I, I tend to classify dyslipidemia into two major categories. One is genetic dyslipidemias like familial hypercholesterolemia. And the other would be more secondary types of dyslipidemia, often related to obesity or other lifestyle factors. And I think the the point around screening actually in some ways varies uh, depending on what you're looking for. So for example, if you have a strong family history of dyslipidemia or early atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, you might measure lipids in a patient as young as two or three years old recognizing that there may be a genetic, a major genetic component. The the current recommendations are that everyone should get a lipid panel sometime between age nine and eleven. Um, and this is a way of really kind of identifying patients with genetic dyslipidemias, but also helpful in identifying patients with lifestyle related dyslipidemias. But the the other point here is that if you're a patient with obesity, if you're a patient with elevated blood pressure, other risk factors for cardiovascular disease, then uh, it's generally recommended that you do a a lipid profile.
0: Can I ask a quick follow-up? Because I also remember being taught one before puberty, one after puberty, or something around the puberty age. Can you expound on that? Is that something that we should be going away with?
3: Yeah, I think it's a good point. Because uh, we know that during puberty, the lipid values can actually change, and they actually change somewhat differently in girls than boys. So both girls and boys have a dip in LDL cholesterol during puberty, uh, which then as they exit puberty uh, tends to go back up. Boys have a dip in their HDL as well, which doesn't go up after puberty. And that's sort of how you get the sexual dimorphism in HDL cholesterol, where women end up with higher HDL cholesterol than men. And so the reason we pick age nine to 11 is to try to avoid that uh, those changes that are occurring with growth spurts and other things that are happening during puberty. And you're right, it's wise to think about universal screening again as you exit adolescence and become a young adult. So we generally say age 18 to 21 is a, another time to do uh, a screening lipid profile.
1: So, if you do your first screening, screening lipid, say at age ten, and there are no other concerns for like obesity-related, like no hypertension or whatnot, then you say just repeat the one at sort of eighteen to twenty-one. If you have other reasons, so say they are obese, so they have hypertension or some other metabolic syndrome that you're looking at, how often would you suggest checking it? Is it something that we should be checking annually as we watch, as we watch them progress, or or just more or a longer time frame from that?
3: Yeah, it depends a bit on on the results and also on your ability to manage the other risk factor. So, you know, in this case, uh for this patient, I think we don't really know if they've had a lipid uh, profile earlier or not. But with a body mass index at the 97th percentile, it it would be a good time to do a lipid profile because I th- I think we want to know are we seeing the, the dyslipidemia that often goes with, uh, with obesity, which interestingly is um, a dyslipidemia that really focuses on elevated triglycerides and low HDL, not as much on elevated LDL cholesterol. Um, and so that's the pattern that we often see with obesity-related and lifestyle-related dyslipidemia.
0: And going even deeper into the weeds, before we've ordered a lipid panel on this patient, I know that there's higher level markers for dyslipidemia and especially in patients who are younger that wind up having uh, atherosclerotic vascular disease, things like ApoB. Are there, is there any indication for when we should be ordering the other lipoprotein A or ApoB? Or what are some of the other screening labs that we might not be ordering, but just so that we have a broad sense of what all the lipid biomarkers are?
3: Yeah. This is where it gets a little bit complicated. But, um, you know, I think that some people have argued that measuring ApoB is a very good way of looking at uh, atherogenic particles. And that's obviously a major focus of interest. But we can actually also get to something similar by measuring what's called non HDL cholesterol, which would be the total cholesterol minus the HDL cholesterol. And the beauty of this is you don't need to be fasting. Fasting really doesn't have that big an influence on your non-HDL cholesterol. And a non-HDL cholesterol is very useful in a primary care setting because it can be done any time of day, very easy to interpret. And generally, we're looking for values over 145 milligrams per deciliter for the non-HDL to indicate elevated or dyslipidemia. I think LP little a is a uh, is a bit of a different story. So LP little a is a very highly genetically determined lipoprotein particle, and it has elements both of a lipid particle that is atherogenic, but it also has elements of a fibrinogen type of structure. So it may actually influence both the development of atherosclerosis and an acute event in terms of clotting around uh, an atherosclerotic plaque. So uh, I test for uh, LP little a in patients where there is a very strong family history of atherosclerotic heart disease early in life and no other obvious risk factors or or risk factors that don't seem to explain uh, why uh, there should be such early uh, cardiovascular disease. There, there's kind of an emerging interest in whether we should be doing universal screening for lipoprotein little a. I find that challenging because at the moment we don't have therapy directed at lipoprotein little a that is uh, easy to use and and uh, useful, especially in the pediatric population. So I, I reserve it for other circumstances. And I think when we find elevated uh, LP little a, what it tells us is that we ought to be more aggressive at managing all of the other risk factors, the LDL cholesterol, but also hypertension, uh, elevated blood pressure, um, obviously avoiding cigarette smoking, uh, et cetera. Um, so, so I think it's, it's a useful, um, lipid uh, value to look at. But at the moment, I think it's in certain circumstances where it's most useful.
1: So the LP little a is a genetic marker, meaning that we only have to check it once that we do screen. Is that correct? It's not going to change based on any of our management.
3: That's correct. So um, it it doesn't make sense to repeat values for LP little a. It it is a little bit challenging in terms of the fact that there are different ways that different labs use of measuring it. So knowing what your lab's normals would be for uh, lipoprotein little a is an important part of the picture.
1: Speaking of differences in different labs, uh, and also going back, uh, touching upon the question about fasting versus non-fasting labs, do you see any usefulness in checking like a direct LDL? Because I do know, especially with really high triglycerides, we see sort of the breakdown of the, can I ever pronounce it right, the Friedenwald equation? Friedrichsen. And I know that most of the LDLs are calculated LDLs when we get a regular lipid panel. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, so in many labs, the way we get the uh, LDL cholesterol is we calculate it from the other numbers, and as you're indicating, when the triglycerides are are very high, when they're over around 400 or so, and some might even say 350, that calculation tends to break down and not work as well. So many labs will do direct measurement of LDL cholesterol um, as a, a special ordered test. In our lipid clinic. We do that more routinely um, and um, but the reality is that even the direct measurement of LDL has some uh, some challenges to it uh, as well and, and I think th- there's still some disagreement about should you always use the direct measurement or uh, is the calculated measurement as good or maybe even in some circumstances better than the direct measurement?
2: Great. So I can go ahead and share that our patient's lab came back with a total cholesterol of 226, triglycerides of 143, HDL was 49, and LDL was 150. So the cholesterol has come back elevated. Are we done here? Or how do you actually go about diagnosing dyslipidemia?
3: Yeah. So this patient has what I would consider something of a mixed dyslipidemia Meaning that um, both the LDL is elevated and the triglycerides are elevated. I have to say for this patient, it's a little bit surprising that the HDL isn't lower than we got, because normally with patients who have obesity, uh, we we often see elevated triglycerides, sometimes in the uh, you know above 150, even up in the uh, in the 200 range, and lower triglycerides, which, you know, would be, or a lower HDL, which would be uh, below 40, sometimes even down below 35. And those things actually tend to go inversely. So when your triglycerides go up, your good cholesterol, your HDL cholesterol tends to go down uh, and vice versa. And so, for example, when we're successful in managing obesity, often we see both of those Uh, lipid values going in a favorable direction. Uh, We'll see triglycerides come down and um, HDL cholesterol go up. HDL is another thing that is more strongly genetically determined than the other values. So we may not get as much of a swing of HDL cholesterol when we treat patients with obesity, but in general, lifestyle changes can have an impact on HDL. And we tend to think that Increasing physical activity, especially aerobic physical activity, can have a beneficial effect on HDL cholesterol.
0: I was going to say for a patient like this who has a slightly elevated triglyceridemia or even higher, and let's say it was drawn at a 3 p.m. in the primary care's office right after lunch, is this a patient that you would repeat the fasting lipid panel on, presumably that triglyceride level coming down and maybe even that calculated LDL coming down? Or is this enough to say you're dysregulated of your lipids and are at pretty high risk for cardiac disease.
3: Yeah, I I actually think that a fasting lipid profile is is a good next step here just to be more certain and you know the triglycerides are the one value that is most responsive to having just eaten or you know even changing in response to diet over the last 24 or 48 hours.
1: Now, you said that this patient looks like a sort of a a mixed dyslipidemia to you. Um, I know there are a couple of different phenotypes we're looking at, or at least categorizations, and I can never get them right in my head. So, I mean, we have mixed, we have sort of the the more familial hypertriglyceridemias. What are some of the big buckets that we have in terms of, and how important is it to diagnose the exact type of dyslipidemia they have outside of familial versus non-familial? Yeah, I actually
3: don't think that being too specific there is um is that helpful. So I, I think when you're in the category of lifestyle and obesity related dyslipidemia, which I think this, this patient is, then the question is where do you go next? And I think the focus really should be on changing lifestyle. Improving diet, improving physical activity, improving the body mass index uh percentile is, is really the approach here for from my perspective. And I think when you're in that mixed category, and especially when it uh, is clearly related to obesity, I think that's the clinical approach to those patients that is most beneficial.
1: How effective are those types of management recommendations? Like, what, how do you normally talk to a patient and their families about weight loss and BMI? Do you say, hey, we should shoot for 5% weight loss or a BMI less than so-and-so? How, what, how are the goals that you set and how do you talk about that with the patient?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I I tend not to talk about um, weight and BMI and goals. I tend to talk about behaviors. And you, you know, my my sense is, you know, you can sit around all day thinking about what your body mass index percentile is, but if you if you don't change your behaviors, you won't have an impact. And and I think that by focusing on changing behavior, and and we know there are a number of ways of helping patients do that. Uh, I, I think the BMI percentile and the lipid values will take care of themselves. Uh, you know, I think we know from research that if you can get a 5 to 10% improvement in your body mass index percentile, that you're going to have improvement in your risk factors. But I'm not sure talking to patients that way is is most beneficial. I think we can say that what we want to do is focus on a series of behavior changes that when we're successful in making those changes will result in uh, improved uh, uh, risk status.
0: Steve, I think that's so great to, to comment on, because I will admit that even after residency now, this is something I've had so much more exposure to, uh, focusing on the lifestyle intervention, focusing on the exercise, and really avoiding a certain amount of, of toxicity and shame that goes in with focusing on the weight, where the goal is not explicitly to to lose pounds, but to to have these healthier uh, uh lifestyles which uh improves and so i think this is something that uh as an attending that i have had more and more exposure to and work on harder and harder not focusing on on weight and being very uh body positive and healthy at any weight uh and i think is a is a good message to
3: yeah and you, you know cross. it's and these are the changes that you want not to be temporary but really kind of integrated into a more permanent lifestyle approach so you you have to approach it that way as well. you know i we've had an example of a patient that was uh, uh, substantially overweight, and we were talking about you know we want to reward good behaviors and and uh, as as part of our approach to uh, changing behavior uh, and the family said, "Oh we've already done that if if uh, he reaches a weight of whatever it was, we're going to go on a cruise." And you know it's like okay timeout that's not the way we need to think about this because you know really the focus is is on how you approach diet and and uh physical activity every day and uh and the rewards ought to be for uh, accomplishing these individual behaviors and they don't have to be huge rewards they can be more modest rewards but given uh in in a more sequential kind of way
2: Great. Should we move on to our second case?
3: It's a
0: great idea.
2: Great. Here we go. So our second patient, Cole, is 10 years old and also here for a well-child visit. His height, weight, and BMI are at the 50th percentile. He's active and a part of the school's basketball team. His lipid panel returns with a total cholesterol of 280, triglycerides of 125, HDL 45, LDL of 210. So, upon further history, you find out that while Mom and her parents are healthy, Dad was recently diagnosed with hyperlipidemia at age thirty seven Paternal grandma has an ischemic uh, hereff at from an m i at age uh sixty and paternal great grandpa died at age forty five from presumed m i so based on this history and lipid panel, what is the most likely diagnosis here for cole
3: yeah, so there's clearly a lot going on here in this family, and I think. The family may not until now have put all this together, and especially have not uh, really thought of it as a, as a pediatric program uh, or problem. So I think this is a patient that has heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. All of the numbers and signs point to that, and you know we know that heterozygous FH is a disease of the LDL receptor. It's a genetically determined abnormality of the LDL receptor, either an abnormality of the receptor itself or a deficiency in the number of receptors or some other genetic things that can affect clearance of uh, LDL receptors, uh, et cetera. So it's important to begin to talk to the family about this as a familial condition uh, that is largely determined by genetics.
0: And can you quickly touch base on some of the different types of familial dyslipidemias and and what are the cutoff values? What should we be looking for specifically when we get these grossly abnormal lipid panels? I feel like it's pretty good where we can say this is familial hypercholesterolemia of some way, this is bad. But as far as the net steps of of the types, can you kind of guide us through the the, the higher level approach?
3: Yeah. So there's a couple of things to talk about here. Um, You know, one is before we get to the actual numbers, this patient is normal height and weight. And I think that's actually a common scenario for patients with uh, heterozygous FH. And this really is often uh, mind-boggling to parents because I think, and and sometimes actually mind-boggling to pediatricians because there's this sense that all dyslipidemia is related to obesity. And uh, if you don't have obesity, Uh, you don't really need to think about lipids. This is, in my mind, why universal screening is really a key aspect uh, of this disease, because this is going to be a patient who's had no symptoms, uh, you know, is a normal-looking child. And if you didn't know about the family history, you you wouldn't have any clues that they have this strikingly elevated LDL cholesterol. Well, so as we think about the bell-shaped curve of normal LDL values, and the bell-shaped curve of those with heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, there's a little bit of overlap. But in general, you can say, if you've got an LDL cholesterol value above 190, you almost certainly have familial hypercholesterolemia. If you're between 160 and 190, it's a little more questionable. But to be honest, it's hard to get to an LDL value in those upper ranges, just with, with obesity, because as we were talking about with the first patient, uh, they had a modest elevation of LDL cholesterol, but nowhere near the kind of value that we're talking about now. And so it's important, I think, to make this distinction because in childhood anyway, uh, childhood and adolescence, you almost can't get to that level of LDL cholesterol through lifestyle changes and, and obesity. And so I, that's why I think it's very helpful to really think about this dichotomy between those two types of, of dyslipidemia.
1: With a significant of a family history we get there, and if we're like a good pediatrician, I'm taking a really good history when the kid's like even younger, would there be a reason to even consider screening even earlier than this and have be more proactive with intervention? Or should we just pretty much be sticking with that sort of 9 to 11-year-old
3: Well, yeah. Screener? So good question. I You know, I think if we Figured out the family history earlier, it would have been very reasonable to do a lipid profile at a younger age in this patient. But I think of universal screening at age nine to 11 as kind of a safety net here. And I think that's what's happened with this patient. And the other point here is with heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, the sense is that the atherosclerotic process doesn't really get going probably until age nine or 10 or 11. So you probably haven't lost a lot of ground by waiting till uh, age nine or 10. Now you could argue, you could have instituted lifestyle changes earlier because lifestyle changes are actually part of, especially lowering the saturated fat in the diet is is part of the treatment, uh, even if you're gonna end up on um, a medication to lower your LDL cholesterol. So you could have started that early at an earlier age. But I, I think what's critical is identifying these patients by age 10 or 11, because you you really want to know by then, because there there is this silent atherosclerotic process, which is going to start and could very well result in an outcome uh, like this patient's grandparents.
0: And how about the, the types of familial hypercholesterolemia? From a clinical standpoint, you know, I remember in studying for STEP, these chylomicron elevations and things, are these things that are clearly relevant? Are you, in your mind, as an expert thinking, this is elevated triglycerides versus elevated LDL? Or if we, if we really want to impress the cardiology consultant, how can we approach the, the types of hyperlipidemias?
3: Well, so for familial hypercholesterolemia, there is a heterozygous form and a homozygous form. And the homozygous form uh, actually is um, very rapidly progressive and would have an LDL value 300, 400, 500. And those are patients that need very early identification and, and very early intervention because they can develop coronary artery disease in their teens. Uh, and they can develop abnormalities of their aortic valve and aortic stenosis early. So they're very at very high risk, and they need very aggressive treatment, often um, involving uh, LDL apheresis. Now, the good news is that that's not a very common disorder. It's, you know, maybe we used to say one in a million, but actually, I think it's more common than that. It's probably one in somewhere between three hundred and five hundred thousand and 500,000 individuals. The heterozygous form is one in 250 individuals. It's the most common genetic dyslipidemia. And if you think about an average uh, pediatric practice, you should have several patients with heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia in your practice, and you should be looking for those, uh, for those patients. Um, I do tend to think that it's mostly about the LDL cholesterol. So I think getting into a detailed dissertation about chylomicrons and, you know, classification of uh, of dyslipidemia um, in my mind tends to be more distracting than helpful, especially at the at the primary care level. Now, there are other rare genetic forms of dyslipidemia, uh, cytosterolemia, and other things but uh, but i I think that you, you know the average pediatrician is not going to see those those abnormalities, and I think what to me seems like is most disappointing is there are Many patients, and this is actually true of young adults too, who have heterozygous familial hyper- hypercholesterolemia, who have very high LDL cholesterol and go unrecognized. And I think those are patients we should be working hard to identify and to treat early. One in two
0: hundred and fifty is surprising. I didn't realize it was that prevalent. That's a that's a that's a takeaway pearl.
3: Yeah, it's it's a, it, it's actually a very common uh, abnormality. And as I mentioned, it's made up of a number of different kinds of gene defects that all have the same potential impact on the LDL cholesterol. So that is part of why it's as common as as it is.
0: Great. Maybe So uh, let's say with a patient that has an abnormal lipid panel, such as this one, does this warrant any further workup? Is this when we pull a trigger on um, uh, uh, ApoB or... LP little A or do you have a knee jerk A1C things you're looking for in a STBC Is there any other kind of secondary workup that you want to do after you've identified a patient with hyperlipidemia uh, well, specifically yeah. familial? So,
3: so there might might be two points here. So one is I think it's very valuable to repeat the lipid profile and and often families are you know kind of disbelieving, so it's helpful to show that it's persistent. So I think that's quite valuable with a lipid and LDL value this high, we do want to make sure that we're not dealing with a secondary form of dyslipidemia. And so that would include liver disease, thyroid disease, renal disease, all of which can result in uh, elevated LDL cholesterol, and all of which can be ruled out with a good physical exam, good history, and some simple lab tests. And so that is uh, an important next step to really verify that, in fact, we're, uh, we're focusing in the right way on this genetic dyslipidemia. Just in terms of LP little a, some people would argue that every patient with familial hypercholesterolemia should get uh, a lipoprotein little a. Again, I think it's, it serves as kind of a risk stratifier and, and might, again, help to guide you to be more aggressive uh, in your treatment.
1: So, you know, going back to treatment a little bit. So we we talked a lot about treatment in terms of um, uh, lifestyle changes, um, and I I know it's probably it's probably just as important with these familial. But I feel that with the familial, it's it's going to be a, a larger uphill battle. Is this true, or is it not true? That's
3: absolutely true. So we often end up saying to our patients that if you have familial hypercholesterolemia you could be on the world's perfect diet and still have elevated LDL and, and really substantially uh, elevated LDL. Now, that shouldn't be a message that you should ignore your diet because you can make some improvements. And I tend to think as we move to more aggressive treatments, statins, that cetera, that you know, we want to be able to use the lowest dose possible. We want to be able to treat in a way that we're combining more aggressive therapy with lifestyle therapy. So, so I think the starting the approach to decreasing the the dietary intake of saturated fat, decreasing the dietary intake of cholesterol is something that's valuable to start and to continue. Even if you are pretty sure you're going to end up with uh, more aggressive treatments down the line.
2: So you mentioned statins and so the three of us here are all med-ped stocks, and in the adult world, we calculate ASCVD risk score to kind of determine whether or not a patient should be on a statin or not. So how do exactly do you determine who gets a statin in the pediatric population? Is there a preferred statin that you would like to use, and what dose would you start at?
3: Yeah, so this is a really interesting difference between adult medicine and pediatric medicine. And if you think about the risk calculators that are used in adults, they're generally estimating the 10-year risk of having an atherosclerotic event. Of course, at a younger age, your 10-year risk is very low, and we don't yet have good calculators of lifetime risk. So I hope at some time we'll get to a similar approach in pediatrics that we might be able to actually have the data that would allow us to create a similar kind of risk score that would help guide us uh, in treatment. But at the moment, we don't have that. So we really base it on LDL levels. And the approach that we take is essentially everyone with an LDL cholesterol above 190 milligrams per deciliter probably deserves more aggressive treatment, usually with a statin. The patients who are between 160 and 190 fall into a bit of a gray zone. And I would say that if those patients have risk factors, like hypertension or other kinds of risk factors, then you would be more likely to treat them pharmacologically. So for those patients, it is thinking in a more combined way about the risk, but not in a way that you develop a score.
2: Got it. And is there a preferred statin that you use or a dose that you like to start at? Well, I tend to
3: use the higher intensity statins. So, you know, I think atorvastatin or rosuvastatin would be uh, likely the first choices. And I think it's important to start with a low dose. So again, this is a difference between the current adult-focused approach, which almost always places patients at a high-intensity statin at a high dose. I think for pediatrics, we like to start low and do some titration based on the kind of impact that we get on LDL cholesterol with our lower doses of statin.
0: And are there specific side effects or labs that you're monitoring for kids on a statin?
3: Yeah. So there are a few things that we think are important to talk to families about. So the probably the biggest one is the issue of myalgias and especially progression to rhabdomyolysis, which is very rare and may be more of an idiosyncratic relationship. So what, what's interesting to me is when you talk to adult practitioners, They find a a very high prevalence of myalgias in response to uh, use of statins. I think there's been some very good recent research that shows that that's actually probably a nocebo effect, not an actual effect of the statin. And one of the things that I think helps us understand that is we see a very low prevalence of myalgias in children. Now, you could argue that that's because we tend to use lower doses, but I actually think it's because myalgias are not as common as we sometimes give them credit for in, in using statins. So we have patients and families look out for muscle-related symptoms. When we hear about muscle-related symptoms, we'll measure creatinine kinase to look to see if it's elevated, but only respond if it's something like 10 times the upper limit of normal. So it has to be very elevated to respond to it. We, in the past, have thought about liver abnormalities related to statins, that seems to be less of an issue you know, than the concern uh, used to be. But I, I think in pediatrics, we do often follow AST and ALT uh, as patients are treated with statins. And then the other big issue with statins is their potential for teratogenicity. So we work with our female adolescent patients to be sure that they know Uh, that if they're sexually active, they should be on birth control, and that pregnancy should be planned, and uh, that it's um, unwise to be on a statin during pregnancy.
1: So my next question is, so obviously statin is, you know, we've decided on doing a statin, and we want to make sure that um, these patients are being treated. Say they do have myologies, and you stop the statin, obviously, until they feel better. I know, especially in our adult literature, we have a lot of great studies looking at. Re-challenging statins, possibly even using the same statin. What is your approach? Do you change to a different one? Do you go with like pravastatin, which might be a little lower in terms of potency? Like how how do you manage that? And do you check for anything else? Is this time to recheck for TSH or vitamin D or start CoQ10? Like what what are the, what are the things that we do in our pediatrics?
3: Yeah, of course. The answer is it depends. Uh, you know, I think it's. Um, I think the first issue is, as I mentioned, the frequency of myalgias in pediatric patients tends to be quite low. So this often is something that we don't have to spend as much time worrying about in our in our pediatric patients. But, you know, for example, we have athletes and, and other patients that may have myalgias for other reasons. And the question comes up, is it the activity they've been involved in, uh, the weightlifting they were doing, or could it be related to the statin? And sometimes when you know when we're not sure, we will stop the statin temporarily, see what impact that is, and then I think you have an option of restarting that same statin and seeing what happens, or going to a different kind of statin. And I don't think there's a hard and fast rule about which of the, of those is correct. We tend not to use coq10 as much in pediatric patients as might be used in uh, adults. And, um, you know, I, um, again, I I tend to think that may be as much a placebo effect as actual uh, improvement in in symptoms. Uh, You know, I think one good piece of news in pediatrics is kids in general have way fewer myalgias than adults. And I think adults, especially as we get older, we just have myalgias for a wide range of reasons.
2: Um, I want to ask a follow-up question in regards to treatments with statin. So once you start a statin, how often do we check lipid panels and what is our treatment goal? Yeah. So
3: the place I would start, as we mentioned, is uh, we start with a low dose and I would do my first check in about six weeks. So a month and a half, maybe to eight weeks and then recheck as we reach sort of a steady state i think you can get into an every 3 month follow up and and ultimately when you're very stable even into an every 6 month kind of follow up uh, schedule so the goal is interesting you know i think our first goal is to get below the 190 mark that we used as a as an indicator for beginning treatment i think some people would say we really want to try to get below 130, which would be uh, getting into a more normal or more borderline range. There's a a bit of a balance, as I see it, between increasing the dose of statin uh, or adding other medications. And we know that as you increase the dose of statins, with each increment of increase, you don't get the same bang for your buck in terms of lowering your LDL cholesterol. So there's a kind of a a bit of a, a diminishing returns there. And we do know in general that the higher you go, perhaps the more risk there is for side effects. So there's kind of a balance there. And here's where I wish we had better data, because what we don't know is we can't tie a level of LDL cholesterol to an absolute risk of developing an atherosclerotic plaque or Uh, um, unstable plaque or an early outcome. So, you know, I think it's, um, this is one of those situations where I think there may be as much art as science and trying to figure out with the family sort of in a joint decision making mode, what's a level we feel comfortable with? And what's the balance between increasing the dose or adding medications versus living with what we're getting? You know, I think if we get a 30 to 50% decrease with our initial dose we're doing pretty well and you know if as we've mentioned if you're getting into the even the 160 range you're getting into a range where we don't treat all patients at that level anyway so that you may be able to accept those kinds of levels as a as a goal and
0: do you feel like these are all things that a primary care provider could be doing if they diagnose a young kid at the age of 9 with an LDL of 210 start a tour of a statin, sit to eight weeks, see it come down to 150. Is that a pretty reasonable thing? Or is this more of a take it easy, Justin, send it to the cardiologist. This is just edutainment.
3: Well, it's a a tricky question because I, as you know, in the uh, internal medicine world, this is bread and butter internal medicine. I don't see why it couldn't be bread and butter pediatrics as well. But having said that, pediatricians see this less frequently than internists and are, you know, frankly fearful of uh, using medications that they don't use all the time. And um, in general, for pediatrics, dyslipidemia is often viewed as a, a referral disease, not as a primary care management disease. I'd like to move more in the direction of the referrals being you know, instances where you're not getting the kind of response that you think you should get or that you're struggling with potentially more side effects or other kinds of, of things. So I, I actually would like to see pediatricians know more about this, feel more comfortable about it and, and manage this, uh, at least the more routine parts of this.
1: One question I have is, you, so you said you're sort of shooting for that sort of 30 to 50% reduction in LDL. I know at least in the adult world, we sort of have a rule of thumb that looking at modern intensity statin therapies, so that would be like atorvastatin 10 to 20, rosuvastatin 5 to 10, and pravastatin 40 to 80. That sort of gets me sort of in the ballpark with my adult patients. Is, is it similar with kids? Or I know you said start really low, so would we see, a? Uh, is it possible to see a more significant Improvement LDL with even lower doses with our children versus our adults.
3: I do think we see in many cases good responses to to lower dose. So, you know, I think with 10 milligrams per day of a torvastatin, we, we often will see a pretty reasonable lowering of of cholesterol, uh, of LDL cholesterol. As as I mentioned, it's it's hard to know when enough is enough. So I I do think that that's an important conversation to have with the family. Around making decisions about do we go up on the dose, you know, do we do something like add azathioprine uh, to the regimen, or, you know, in some very difficult patients, we actually can add uh, bile acid sequestering agents. Uh, although those are really hard to take for children and adolescents, they're, they're hard to take for adults actually. And um, in some cases, you know, there may even be a question about should you get even more aggressive by using the PCSK9 inhibitors. Uh, we tend to use those very sparingly, um, and we would use them in, in patients with homozygous uh, FH, but very sparingly in patients with heterozygous FH, in part because they're injectable and um, it, it's a bigger challenge to use them in pediatric patients than it is, I think, in adults.
1: I assume prior also would be very difficult in in our children to get those, and I assume at, at that point I would have referred to a patient to some sort of lipid specialist in pediatrics. Correct. Yep. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: I yeah think that's I, correct. My rule of thumb is when I'm on the second PCSK9 inhibitor, that's when I do the referral. Usually, is <laughs> say, this is this is getting too much.
1: <laughs> okay, so I guess the next question would be: so if we're looking at more hypertriglyceridemia, we've been talking a lot about LDL lowering are we approaching this a little differently? Are we still starting off with a statin, even though it doesn't have as big an effect on the triglycerides? Or are we shooting for um, some other medication like a fibrate or um, ethyl or something like that, which I know has not really been studied in in children?
3: Yeah. um, So uh, again, this is um, a bit of a gray area for pediatrics. So, you know, there's no question that for patients who are in the range of uh, genetically determined hypertriglyceridemias you know, patients who have triglycerides over a thousand, the concern there becomes more a concern about pancreatitis. You know, there's an underlying concern about atherosclerosis, but it's but it's really a different kind of concern. For patients with more moderate elevations of triglycerides, I tend to think that if we're appropriately aggressive about our dietary therapy, and for triglycerides, it really has to be both about simple sugars and about saturated fat, that we should be able to accomplish lowering those levels with appropriate lifestyle and especially dietary treatment. So I I think it's fair to say that we don't have very many pediatric or adolescent patients who are on fibrates or on other agents to lower triglycerides. And I, I think for pediatrics, uh, unless the triglycerides are very, very high, we tend not to treat them pharmacologically. And then can I
0: go back? One of the core concepts that I think is keeps coming up is this idea of the importance of the non-pharmacological therapy and lifestyle management. Do you have a spiel that you go over with patients? Is there a way that you really focus on how much aerobic activity or to encourage them or specific dietary changes? Are you referring to nutrition or what are things we can do in clinic to really try to drive home the most effective behavioral counseling?
3: Yeah, it, it depends, I think, on how aggressive we're getting in our uh, dietary changes. So I think the kinds of dietary changes that we're talking about with uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, Really are helped by including a dietitian in the team, and we have dietitians in in our lipid clinic who are, I think, very effective at working with patients on understanding where saturated fat comes into the diet, understanding you know why simple sugars are way more prevalent than people would would think, et cetera, and are very good at implementing those kinds of behavior changes. When we think about primary care, you know, it's it's very different across different primary care pediatric practices in terms of what kinds of multidisciplinary approaches they have available to them. So, you know, there are some primary care practices that, that have ready access to dietitians, and, and I think that's very helpful, uh, but many do not. Again, I I think the approach is very similar to what we were talking about when we were talking about obesity. It's it's really a stepwise approach. I, I think this concept of using motivational interviewing to try to meet the patients and their families where they are, in terms of which kinds of changes they'd like to focus on first, which kinds of changes they think they have the capability to make, uh, I think is is really an important part of organizing this. And you know, part of the problem is it feels from a physician standpoint to be um, like a very slow process. And I think many of us as physicians, you know, feel like can't we just give recommendations and that will turn into action. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to remind ourselves over and over again that among the hardest things we do are to get patients to change their behaviors and that we really have to work on the points that we know education is not enough. We really have to be, you know, kind of a junior psychologist to re- really be successful in making those kinds of, of lifestyle uh, and behavior changes. But I also think we know that if we do it well and work with patients in the right way, we can be successful. You know, I th- I think there's another point to make about familial hypercholesterolemia, which we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. And that is because it's a genetic disease. If we find it in one family member, we should start looking in other family members. So it's interesting, in the case we talked about, we actually had older family members with kind of indicators of of disease. But it's not uncommon for the screening in pediatrics to identify the first person in the family who is aware that there is this heterozygous FH. So we need to use that as a way of getting the parents screened, getting the grandparents screened, getting the aunts and uncles and um, uh, and the siblings uh, screened. And th- this is an approach that is almost universally applied in Europe and works very well in their healthcare system. Uh, in fact, you could argue that in, in Europe, because they're so focused on this cascade type of screening, that they don't have to do universal screening. But I think in our healthcare system, with the difficulties we have in getting complete family histories, et cetera, Uh, I actually think this concept of what I would call reverse cascade, meaning starting with the child and moving upward in family members, really can be beneficial because you may have parents and grandparents who are at at substantial, more proximate risk of real cardiovascular disease. And so by identifying the children, I think you can actually have a big impact in the family as a whole.
2: Um, I think I'm gonna close this out with a final question that we like to incorporate into all of our episodes. So how do you see racial disparities, social determinants of health impact dyslipidemia in kids? Yeah. Um,
3: and of course it depends on which dyslipidemia we're talking about. So I think that when we're talking about the kinds of racial disparities and, and ethnic disparities that we see in obesity, we see concomitant disparities in dyslipidemia. And so it's important to recognize that because we see higher prevalences and higher severity of obesity and, and severe obesity in African-Americans and in our Hispanic populations, uh, we, we really need to be tuned into those issues as we design our healthcare system around identifying those patients. And, you know, all of the Things we've been talking about related to lifestyle really have to be tailored to be culturally appropriate and culturally effective. So we have to recognize that families come with different concepts about diet, healthy diet, physical activity. You know, what's a healthy body mass index, et cetera. And we have to be aware of those issues and and deal with them individually. For familial hypercholesterolemia, it's a bit of a different. Picture because it is so strongly genetically determined. And it's interesting, if you go to South Africa as an example, dyslipidemia is very prevalent, uh, familial hypercholesterolemia is very prevalent in the white population and almost unheard of in the uh, native African population. And the thinking is that there may be uh, something of a founder effect in terms of the Dutch settlers in South Africa who brought the genetic mutation. We see the same occurring in um, Quebec, in, um, in Canada, et cetera. So there, there are interesting differences in prevalence of gene defects across populations that uh, it's important to be uh, aware of for these genetic dyslipidemias. And just to connect a few dots, I would say in terms of understanding how race, ethnicity affects a wide range of things in our healthcare system. The book I re- recommended at the beginning actually speaks to important concepts about that, and um, there's some specific, more health-related examples, but it, it, it actually talks broadly about those issues that we all need to be aware of if we're going to be effective in solving.
0: That's a great way to to bring it back full circle, and and thank you for at the beginning and at the the end of the show, kind of identifying some of these challenges and more systemic challenges in healthcare delivery and in the health of pediatric patients. We've talked about a lot, whether it's obesity and screening, the um, high prevalence of familial hypercholesterolemia. Uh, We've talked about treatments. We've talked about uh, different biomarkers. We've gone through a lot. What are some of the main take-home points that you think are important for our listeners to walk away with?
3: Well, so I I think that a key factor is that familial hypercholesterolemia in the heterozygous form is way more common than people often uh, recognize and occurs in the absence of obesity. So this, I think, is the rationale for universal screening of children, to identify those kids with familial hypercholesterolemia who need to be recognized early and uh, and once recognized, can be treated. And actually, as we discussed, interventions can occur throughout the the family, which can improve risk across multiple family members. I I think that a key takeaway for the uh, uh, more lifestyle and obesity-related dyslipidemia is that it uh, is a part of what we see as the kind of multi-system effect of obesity. You know, I, I think of obesity as affecting almost every organ system in the body adversely, and lipids are no different. I think the the current difference in approach is that the approach to obesity and lifestyle-related dyslipidemia is all about lifestyle, changing lifestyle and uh, improving uh, body mass index, et cetera, whereas on the genetic dyslipidemia side. That's important, but often not enough. You often need more to be able to get to levels of LDL cholesterol that you can feel comfortable with.
0: Excellent. And for our listeners, is there anything that you think is a good resource or something that you'd like to plug where we can send our audience to?
3: Well, so the American Heart Association has uh, dyslipidemia guidelines. Unfortunately, they don't spend as much time on the pediatric aspects of dyslipidemia as I would like. So actually, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Committee on Nutrition of the American Academy of Pediatrics is currently working on new recommendations and a new statement. So I'm hoping that in the next 12 months or so, we will see a more comprehensive approach to this. And what's going to happen that's going to be a little bit different is actually there will be two separate statements, one focused on genetic dyslipidemia, trying to make those issues as clear as possible, and a second statement focused on the more lifestyle related dyslipidemia. Because I, I think there's been a fair amount of confusion among pediatricians about how, how these how these work. And so I, I'm hopeful that by separating These two uh, statements that it'll clarify some of those issues and lead to better management and and recognition.
0: Excellent future guidelines coming our way. Uh, We will keep an eye out for them. Thank you so much for enjoy uh, for joining us. This uh, I think was a very high yield episode. I feel a lot more comfortable with the buckets of hyperlipidemia and initial steps. And I, you know, I. I'm going to catch patients. I, I don't know of any in my patient panel right now, which means that I am not straining enough. And uh, I'm going to order a lipoprotein little A just because <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, it's an option. It is um, an option. Yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, again, thank you for, for your time, your expertise. Really, really grateful for you joining us. And I think this was a really high yield episode. Thanks so much for your time.
3: Yeah. I really appreciate you inviting me and uh, it's been a fun discussion. So uh, I appreciate it. And uh the opportunity to talk about a few things not specifically related to lipids is always fun too. So thanks.
0: Absolutely. All right.
2: This has been another episode of the Cribsiders.
0: It's for the kids.
2: Get show notes and sign up for a weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at www.cribsiders.com.
0: We are committed to providing you with high value practice, changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can also email us at Cribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Joan Park. Also a bit thanks to Dr. Sam Mazer, our showrunner, and Dr. Nick Lee, the executive producer for this episode, and always our wonderful social media team. I've been Justin Lee Burke.
2: I've been Joan Park. And this
1: has been Chris the Chimanchu Man Thank you and good night.
0: Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.